This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. I love a multi-hyphenate. Anyone who's been successful in repackaging or expanding their skills gives me hope that the million ideas that I have stomping around in my head at any given moment will someday find a home. And personally, I'm following Janet Mock's blueprint. Here's a woman who started as a journalist, my career sister, and used her gifts of storytelling to springboard into becoming a New York Times bestselling author, a screenwriter, a director, a podcast host, a producer, and even an actor. But she doesn't really like to talk about that last one, so don't bring it up like I did. The crazy thing is, with all those accolades to her name, Janet is just getting started. She made headlines last year for her overall deal with Netflix, and if her work on Pose, The Politician, and Hollywood is any indicator, we're in store for some truly groundbreaking projects from Janet. In our conversation, Janet explains the importance of building those stepping stones toward your ultimate passion project, how she learned to listen to other voices in the room, and why she chose the story of another, more infamous Janet to be her debut project through Netflix. Oh yeah, and why you shouldn't expect any more acting roles from her anytime soon. All right. Well, Janet, thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to talk to you. You have no idea. I'm so excited too, Casey. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And, you know, we know we know you today as this sort of, you know, badass multi-hyphenate, right? I mean, just some of your titles include journalist, author, actor, podcast host, screenwriter, producer, director. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And, you know, I, what I'm curious to know is really what was your first love in the creative sense? Like knowing that you are this incredibly talented woman, I mean, what was your first love in the creative sense, really? I guess it would just, just my, you know, hand to pen to paper, to be mm. honest. I think that all that I do rests on my ability to thoroughly uh, communicate my vision, the things that are in my mind, um, whether that's stories, whether that's elements of you know character whether that's themes or feelings or you know a flick of a wrist or a you know sway of a hip being able to communicate that yeah you know phenomenal woman phenomenally honey you know i did that i did that in a poetry recital and i got a grand prize in 11th grade i will not that was one of the first trophies i ever earned so yes um yeah so i think that for me it would be the ability to to translate what sometimes feels very mumbled and scattered and all over the place and being able to make sense of it on the page um and so for me it would it would be writing that would be my my first love and my first in and that probably really started by being a reader first knowing that it was even possible reading works by Maya Angelou from the library um, in Kalihi in Hawaii, um, being able to have Toni Morrison's words and Terry McMillan's words and worlds with black women unapologetically centered. Um, Reading those yeah. grown books at your young age, come on. Well, you know, I had to sneak them. I had to sneak them into the house. I snuck them into the house. I read them by clandestine night. It was like, it was my, you know, 
my in grown folks business as i always was scolded by my grandma <laughs> get out of grown folks business and i was all the way in it I and it made me it. better <laughs> oh my god you and i both i had a whole summer where i just i was i've always been a big reader but i had one summer where i just went off when i tell you like every day I was in the Lincoln Parish Library in Ruston, Louisiana, just checking out book after book. And I finally was like, you know what? I'm tired of these kitty books. I wanted a challenge. And I got Stephen King. Oh, uh, what was it? Um, oh, it wasn't thinner. It was what was it was some book. And I just remember it was way over my head. I was like, this is I read it, but I was like, this material is not for me. So I was like, again, I no one told me to stay out of grown folks' business, but my mom was like, he got a huge book. That's all that matters. And I'm like, Mom, you should you should have been there for me. But that was I wasn't supposed to read that. But I mean, that being said, I mean, did you see you had this love of writing, this love of reading? Um, but did you see your career unfolding the way it has? I mean. What did you want for yourself versus what you saw immediately in front of you in those early mm. years? Um, in those early years, I think like any, you know, first generation college student specifically going mm. into that, right? In my high school years when I was forced to kind of really think practically about career, I couldn't think in a way that had these grand dreams around them, right? Like, because mm. I knew that I would possibly be the only person in my family to gain access to that kind of resources and that kind of education and space. So I had to think about very early on, how will I take care of my family, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, I knew at that time period, specifically in the early aughts, um, that I wanted to work in magazines. Mm. And so instead of, instead of having sites, probably really quiet, whispers to myself that I wanted to be a novelist, but would have never said it because I didn't know how I would make money <laughs> to be a novelist. I knew that there was a job called an editor and I could go to a job as an editor or writer or a fact checker at these big magazines in New York City. And that could be a pathway for me to become a writer, mm -hmm. um, to be paid as a writer, um, to make a living, to take care of myself and therefore take care of my family in a way. And so, for me, that was the first kind of career path for me. Um, and so once I got to New York, I went to NYU for journalism um, to get my master's in journalism. And I did the hustle. I did the internships. I, you know, got the, you know, entry level, you know, freelancer job as a writer researcher, which then turned into a permanent position. And I was shocked because I started working at websites. Mm. And this was in 2006. My goal was not to be a digital journalist. That is not what I was trained to do. I was like, I am supposed to be a features editor at a women's fashion magazine. This is, not in, this is not in the story, but then it was what became available. And I got so lucky that I um, allowed myself to be adaptable in that way, to take on the job, which back then, people have to remember, like, it was not a prize job. They were calling it new media and new mm -hmm. journalism. They were oh, calling it, you know, they were calling it the digital platforms and all this stuff. And I was like, I have to work at people.com and not people magazine. Like, and I remember that, like I used to say stuff like, I work at people magazine's website. Like, cause I wanted to say people magazine. And then who knew in the, t in the five years that I was there, it completely flipped. Yeah. Digital became where you're supposed to be. And I naturally learned how to, be engaged in social media as a journalist, as a entertainment reporter, 
Um, I learned how to package stories. I got all this wealth of stuff and tools in my toolkit that then enabled me when I made the decision to finally be my own writer and to tell my own story through my memoir, um, to be able to connect with people through my story and to build my audience mm -hmm. um, in a way through my advocacy and my writing and my essays and all of that stuff. And so that kind of was the early trajectory and it was through those memoirs um, and my public prominence of you know advocacy um, and you know appearances that then led me into television. Um, right. And yeah. that's where I was going to go, because, I mean, you know, you worked as a journalist and then that, you know, bled into your memoir, uh, your first memoir, Redefining Realness in 2014, I believe, and then Surpassing Certainty in 2017. And then television, you know, like then bam, tell. And I, I, I think the first real, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you first dipped your toe in to television with uh, with your docu with your documentary The Translist, it was something that you were a producer on. Your lead uh, the lead interview, fantastic HBO documentary, really really well done. Um, and actually, remember you came to the Fast Company office for that, and I was like, Janet Mock is in our office. Oh my <laughs> god! I was like in the cafe area. You're doing a video, and I was just like, I was just like so could barely hear you through the, the thick glass, but I was just like, oh my god, Janet Mock is here. Um, but you know, but then Pose. I mean, Pose is really your first foray in into uh, the narrative space of storytelling. And so how did that opportunity even come about for you? Um, I remember it was the summer of 2017. My book, I think my book came out in May. Mm -hmm. uh, May or no, my book came out in June, but we started the press in May, going to all the festivals, mm -hmm. all the authors thing, doing the book tour route. And I was just so exhausted by the end of that. And so I remember at the end of June, I had, um, swapped houses with my mm -hmm. best friend and I he went into my home in New York and then I went into his home um in West Hollywood and we just swapped places and I was like I'm just gonna sit for a little bit after this tour and really think about what I want to do next and so I was thinking I was already kind of crafting like I had an idea for a novel in my head and so I went with the goal of like outlining that novel and mm -hmm. really just kind of doing it in a very safe small space and during those two weeks in LA, just randomly, I got a call um, from my agent and she said, Ryan Murphy wants to meet with you. Um, it's, a uh, it's a general meeting. And I said, I, I was like, someone as busy as him, it can't be a general meeting. What does he want? And right. she would not give me any information. <laughs> And I had no, and back then I wasn't really engaged in like reading the trades, like the Hollywood trades, you know, right. like Variety and Deadline and um, Hollywood Reporter. And so I really didn't know why he wanted to meet with me. And so I was like, oh, maybe he wants to like help me adapt my first book into a feature. Cause I always thought that that's the route that I would go. I would do similar to Alice Walker did with The Color Purple. Mm -hmm. I would write the script, you know, the adaptation, and then some great director would come in and make it into this beautiful story. And so when I met with him on the set, it was July of 2017, and it was on the set of uh, the assassination of Gianni Versace, which he was directing mm -hmm. um, in Hollywood, like at some club or something. And it was just in between setups, he came over and we had this conversation about this new show that he was working on with Stephen Canals and Brad Falchuk um, called Pose. Um, and he was like, we have two scripts and we need um, 
an authentic voice in the room that can speak directly to um, the women's experiences, these yeah. five trans women um, that we've cast. Um, and we know that in order for this to be a full and authentic and living um, eight part season that we need you in the room, we need your voice. And so I was hired on the spot, but it was really weird because it was literally only, Casey, it was only a 30 minute meeting. Um, and I didn't go in there thinking, I did not go in there thinking I was going to get a job or that I didn't go in trying to pitch him on anything. Right. It was just like, he was, he cut to the, literally he sat down and said, so I want to tell you about my new show pose that we're going to start shooting in November. Uh, we need to write some more scripts and I like you. I think it'll be fun. I love your writing. Like, let's do it. And that was kind of the meeting. And then a month later, literally in by August 7th or 8th, and that was like July, the middle, that was like July, the first or second week of July, right after um, uh, 4th of July. Right. I was in, I was living in my friend's apartment, renting his room, his spare room and writing on pose. Unbelievable. And yeah, that's kind of how it, <laughs> how it happened. I mean, what do you think he saw in you? Because I mean, obviously, by by then, you 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 had become this public figure, and you know, it, it's clear that you're a very gifted writer. But screenwriting is a different beast entirely. And so, I mean, what do you think he saw in you outside of your lived experience? Experience outside of you know the fact that you can <laughs> write. Uh, what was it that he saw in you that made him take that chance? I I believe Ryan read my first book. And um, I, a lot of people said that it was very cinematic, like that they could really see it in a way, the way that it was written. Um, and so I think it was that, and I think it was also, he watched um, a clip of me that, you know, it was probably like the most known thing about me at that time period. And I think it was the, the CNN clip of when I go up against uh, Piers Morgan um, <laughs> while promoting, <laughs> while promoting my, my first book um and i think that he probably and knowing ryan now personally like having worked with him the last three years i think he probably saw a woman who was not going to kowtow to him who was not going to hold back any punches um who was not who was going to call it out if it wasn't right um yeah. if something didn't feel right in the script if something didn't feel real if something didn't feel authentic and i think that that's really what he saw. I think he saw the voice. He heard the voice. Um, he saw that I had command of story um, because I had written two books. And um, that just my personality, that I would also then have the patience, I think, too, specifically if you're thinking about the safe space and the vulnerable space of a writer's room and how it's composed, mm -hmm. that I'd have this, I had the ability to explain very difficult concepts in an accessible way so that people would be able to hear it. And I think there's many different ways of communicating in group settings, um, specifically through collaboration, um, that for some people, collaboration's not for them, right? Like when I was younger, I was never the person that, um, that was good at group projects. I would always take it over do it and say you guys go home and rest and then i will do the project and we will all get an a right uh <laughs> you are me i am you this is me to a like I, had, I had little patience for you know and so i think over the years i developed you know um that skill to be able to collaborate 
and to realize that I don't have to have all the answers. And I think working in TV, um, specifically in a writer's room, taught me that. Yeah. I learned um, I learned how to, it forced me to be collaborative from the start in a way that writing books and essays, you don't have to do from the jump. You yeah. can sit in your room and break a story or think about a story by yourself and outline and come up with a master plan for yourself to tell this story. And then you share it with an editor or you share <laughs> it with your friends who are your safe space, your writer's group or whatnot. Right. Um, but in television, most likely there's a room and in that room there's at least one or two or three other people like our room is and you're forced to pitch ideas and you're forced to open yourself up in your stories so that those stories can become a part of the fabric of of the, the series mm -hmm. um and i learned a lot through that and it was a learning curve for yeah. me um i found myself i think oh go ahead no, 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 no. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to ask. I mean, like what I, I was going to ask, like, what were those lessons that you learned the hard way? And I think that that one in particular has always been so interesting for me, because like I said, I am the exact same way when it comes to group assignments. I'm like, y'all going to mess it up to begin with. Just let me handle it. Like, I mean, big, big Virgo energy. I'm like, listen, it's just, <laughs> just let me take this over. Okay, Beyonce. <laughs> listen, the work, like it's, I just get so frustrated so easily, but it's like, <laughs> I completely get that. But in, in TV, like you mentioned, like you're forced to collaborate. And so, you know, to that end, how do you know for you when to, when to, when to listen and when to double down on like what you know is true? Like, where's that balance for you? Because I know for someone is, uh, for someone who has a lot of opinions like yourself, for someone who's very strong-willed like yourself, how do you know when to how do you know when to fight for your ideas, and how do you know when to say, okay, like let me just put my hands up and let someone else take the wheel for a second? Well, specifically with Pose, I think I really learned that it was really my first true, I think, collaborative effort um, as a writer. Yeah. Um, when I was an editor at People, I didn't have to do that so much because everything was so shared. And I think also for me, the emotional investment wasn't quite there. I was very clear that I was a Time Inc. employee working for, you know, and doing entertainment journalism. And so it was not God's work. Um, and it was not my <laughs> life's calling. It was, it was a stepping stone to where I needed and wanted to go. Um, <laughs> and so I was here to gain some tools and a paycheck and be able to support myself. Um, until I find out what the real dream was. Yeah. And so once I got to, you know, pose into that room, I knew my role, I think is also something when you're in um, collaboration with people. I knew that I was a writer, um, a Black woman, a Black trans woman in this room who had very specific stories that um, I knew I was called to tell. Right. And so for me, I was not the showrunner, so I didn't have to worry about budgets. I didn't have to worry about costumes and lighting and the right department heads and you know, um, negotiating with a network to get us the money that we needed to tell this story in a very specific, glossy, entertaining, um, but grounded way. Mm -hmm. That was Ryan's job, and he already had two co-creators who came in and and they worked out who the characters were, right? So when I was coming in, I knew I was a part of someone else's story, yeah. right? And the narrative that they wanted to tell. And my job was to be, as a lot of my work is, was to be my sister's keeper. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the battles that I fought in the room largely were about story. 
it was, I am the expert in being a black trans woman. We have five black trans women on the show. That is where I will make sure that those stories feel real, that they feel grounded, that they feel rooted and that they feel purposeful and that each of those women feel distinctly like their own flavor right. and their own, their own ideas and thoughts. And that number one, at the end of the day, that these women, trans women, black trans women specifically are not a monolith that, you know, we're so much more than statistics. And so for me, a lot of my battles <clears throat> and where I truly found my voice was targeting that and staying in that lane. And through doing that, um, uh, my, you know, kind of like you call this thing in the room, in, in any profession, I think, where you build your credibility in a sense, not that you have to prove yourself in any way, but before you can make these bigger swings and these bigger pitches, at least for myself, it was like, I needed to show that I was an expert at this. And then it was like, oh, well, we have this script, episode six that we're breaking. And Janet, you're going to write it with me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know, though, that Ryan had his own plans as he was saying this to me. You're going to write this script with me. Because when the script was written, he was like, oh, and you're going to direct it. And I was like, wait, what? Huh? <laughs> you know, in the story, that script, if you really look at that script, it has nothing to do with the girls. Right. The script is very much, it's a two-hander. The script, um, it was called Love is a Message, um, season one, episode mm -hmm. six. And it kind of became our series' calling card. Yeah. Um, it became the breakout episode of that first season. And that script really was about Pray Tells, um, played by Billy Porter. It was about his story um, with his love, mm -hmm. who was dying of AIDS. And it became about Kate Mara's character, Patty's mm -hmm. story and her discovering that her husband, played by Evan Peters, Stan, um, was having an affair with Angel, played mm -hmm. by India Moore. And so it was really about those two characters. They're both six cis characters. They're, you know, neither of them are engaged in any kind of like sex work or anything that had anything to do with me. And I saw, and I didn't know it at the time, but Ryan was pushing me to say, you can tell stories across all characters that your job in this room is not just this. And guess what? You're also just not a writer. Mm -hmm. The way that I see that you communicate, the way that you write, you are a director. Um, and in that sense, that really was kind of my, it changed that directing in that script changed my entire career. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. When you think about your, your work on, you know, Pose and the work that you've done in Hollywood and The Politician, you know, how has being this writer, director, producer, how's all of that given you a new perspective on storytelling? Because I know that that's always been at the root of, you know, who you are and what you want to put out in the world is like just good storytelling. So how is your work in TV giving you a new perspective on what makes effective storytelling? Um, I think it, it's really just given me a, really a 360 of the entire process in this way. Um, it was so fascinating in a sense to be able, you know, specifically with my first experience directing and still directing to this day, um, how you have to be so clear um, with your collaborators, because that's the one thing you learn with TV and film is that you as a director are being asked questions all day, every <laughs> single day. 
And I mean, from the most mundane, but it's not mundane to the props master. What yeah. color napkin are you using in this scene, right? Everybody's like, oh, I don't really care. It can be white. And then you realize, oh, they're eating pizza. And then when it comes to continuity, and would really the House of Evangelista have white napkins that Blanca would have to launder? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like you think about this stuff. It's like these things actually matter. You know, it may not be like the pinnacle of my focus and job for the day, <laughs> but it affects the story that I'm telling and therefore right. affects character and affects everything, right? And so you're dealing, you're fielding those questions all day. And so I think for me also being a executive producer on the shows that I work on and a writer in the room, I have a 360 approach. I'm in the room when the stories are being broken. Mm -hmm. I'm there when I go to go write the script. And then I'm there when I'm prepping that script and then directing that script. <laughs> and so, and then I'm also there after you finish shooting and you're going to post and you're dealing with the different cuts. You got the editor's cut, the director's cut, and then you have the producer's cut, which becomes the final cut. Oh. And so you learn, like you learn everything. You learn what is possible budget wise. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that we are in right now with this new world of Miss Rona coming after all of us. You know, it's just, we have to think about like what is economically and what is physically safe enough for us to shoot in this mm -hmm. new world. And so I think the writing, directing and producing has helped me tell um, fuller stories that are actually possible to pull off. Yeah. Because there's one thing of being like, you know, in your dream world, you know, I have my dream world show that I know I won't probably do until, you know, five years down the road in my career that's, you know, a period piece and it's going to have this and that and this and that. I can't tell that story right now. Right. <laughs> I can tell that later on when I've gained the credibility and the clout and had more experience under my belt mm -hmm. um, because I don't want to compromise that vision. But yeah. you have to work toward getting there. And I think all of these different steps from being a writer to being invited to produce some pose. Because when I was invite when I was brought on to do pose, I was only brought on as um, a story editor. So that's just mm -hmm. like the second tier above staff writer, um, the way that it works in the tiers. And then during the pilot shoot, when Ryan was directing the first two episodes of the first season, um, he upgraded me to producer. Um, and it was him seeing how I was with the actors and my relationship, even with the background actors and how I helped, you know, when I was watching the monitor and helping improve scenes and giving one-liners to him and all that stuff that he was like, oh, she's so much more than just someone who writes scripts. Like she's a producer, she's producing. And so all of these little things just, I just stepped up each time. Right. Um, but I think what, to answer your question in a short way, <laughs> it's the 360 of it. Yeah. You, know, you can have a vision, but being able to put it down and to make it shootable impossible right. i think is the thing that these three different roles um and it's kind of only the only way that i know how i've only had one experience where i've been a guest director meaning i was not a writer in the room and that was on the first season of the politician i did episode three mm. um that was my second episode of television that i directed and it was a completely different world. It's a bunch of white prep school students, <laughs> basically. I was going to say, that's a are, He's like about 360 storytelling. That's a 180. And like, you know, they, had, they, got, they live in rich mansions in Santa Barbara. You know, it was a whole new world. It was not the gritty Harlem and Bronx, you know, locations we were in for Pose. You know, cramped rooms with peeled, you know, paint and, you know, broken glasses and no AC. Um, and so it was like, stepping into that, I learned... Um, so much, but I also didn't like the experience of being a guest director as much because I couldn't change the script. 
I couldn't work with actors during rehearsal and say, you know what, that's not hitting right. So let's like take this dialogue out. Let's replace it with this. Let me throw this ad lib at you. I felt so constrained. And for some people, they love that. Mm. But for me, it didn't, that guest directing slot didn't quite work for me. And I've been given other, I've been offered other opportunities to guest direct on big shows. And I've said no, because after having the experience of being one, even within the safety of Ryan Murphy television world, um, I just didn't like that constraint. I wanted to be able to flow a little bit more with the actors so that when, say for example, I remember there was a day when Je I had to direct Jessica Lang. Yeah. Let's be clear, Jessica Lang. Listen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did love that experience. I did love that experience of working with a legend like that, but like having to direct Jessica Lang and she had questions about the script and as a writer, I was not in the room. So I couldn't answer those questions for her and then trying to get in touch with Ryan and getting through to him and then having to answer. It just, I felt there's a less of a sense of authority, I think, and a command of the story for right. me that because so much of my DNA and the way that I tell stories are built on my abilities as a writer, yes. it was tough for me. And it was a disconnect and it was like another if it makes sense, it was another layer between me and the performer, me and my direct collaborator that I didn't, I didn't like that as much. Right. Um, and you mentioned, you know, this Ryan Murphy universe, and he's obviously been a major mentor for you. I mean, you were, a, I don't know if you would term it as a graduate, but you went through his initiative half, you know, which obviously aims to create more opportunities for women and minorities behind the camera. And so when you think about the work that you've done on Pose, on The Politician in Hollywood, how how would you chart your evolution as a storyteller and how has Ryan influenced you in that evolution? I've never had a mentor before Ryan. Mm. And I think Ryan would also say that it took him a very long time in his career to find one for himself. Yes. Um, and I think that it's so interesting. I think that number one, going into the initial field that I went to, there were no there were no prominent black women editors at the magazines, you know, that I um, was interning at. I remember even at InStyle, there was one, like Sydney Bolden. She was the one fashion editor um, who was a black woman at a major women's fashion magazine. And we all clung to her, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but she didn't have time for all of us because the girl, she, the woman had to do her job. She couldn't right. take on all these babies. You know, she she greeted us every day, checked in on us. But, you know, it's labor to have to mentor someone. And so yeah. most often who got mentors were white women who were in that same space because mostly it was white women editors who mm -hmm. were traditionally in power. And so they tended to hire assistants who looked like and came from their backgrounds. And so us Black girls who are trying to hustle and make a way, you know, it was rare for us to find that same kind of mentorship. Um, and guidance. And so very early on, I think, you know, same thing my grandmother always told me, you know, you got to do twice as much to get half as much, right? And so, it, <laughs> you know, day, and so grandma. <laughs> for me, it was like, it was like, honey, you got to make a way out of no way. Yeah. And that was kind of a lot of how I went in my career. Um, of course, I was able to follow blueprints of other Black women writers who came before me, Audre Lorde mm -hmm. and Maya Angelou and Zora Neale Hurston to see how they plotted. And even as I went into 
screenwriting and directing, I looked to, you know, Nora Ephron, who went from being a journalist, who wrote about her own experiences in her books, who then wrote scripts and then went into directing to tell her own stories. Like, I got to see how they did it and I plotted my path in that way. And the great gift that came into my life was mentorship through Ryan, because I think that he did things for me that um, no one had ever done for me before in that same kind of way, which was he saw gifts in me um, and probably semblances of his self mm -hmm. in me that he then was like, I remember what it was like to be the only, to be the only out showrunner you know, um, doing my shows, to yeah. make my aesthetic unapologetically queer, mm. to make sure that my characters and my actors could play across sexualities and genders in this way. Um, and so I think he saw something in me through Pose that pushed me. And he didn't only push me, but as you mentioned, the half initiative, I, I shadowed him on the pilot um, in the second episode shoot. I then went on my own and helped, um, you know, I was on set to supervise production because I wrote a script called Fever that Gwyneth Horter-Payton, um, a, a very prominent um, woman director, um, I got to shadow her while also being the writer on set to make sure that I was there to work on story and make sure that she got what she needed and that all the nuances and the tone were right. And so in that sense you know i was developed at the same way it wasn't enough to say i see something you go do it it was like i see something in you let's prep you so that you can then go and do it on your own mm -hmm. um and so in that sense i was i i'm so grateful to ryan for seeing what he saw in me for um allowing me to in season two to direct two more episodes to do the finale of season two which is it's hard for for directors to get premieres and finales and the fact yeah. that i got that it was such a huge trust um and the stakes were so high and the script was so ambitious and there every single character had an arc and i'm so proud of that episode um and so just like always kind of pushing me to do more and to do more and do more and i supervised production all of season two i learned basically what it meant to be a showrunner on the ground mm -hmm. um, before I even go and do my own productions. And he was a huge advocate to say, I think that you should be at Netflix and you should have your own creator deal. Um, and all of those steps of the way, you know, like really showing up what it means to be an ally too, yeah. you know, as a cis person and as a white gay man, he really used his privilege and his access into spaces to say, come on, this is, you need, you need your own table over there. You're going to have a seat at it. You're going to be at the head of the table. Um, and you go out and like, tell me all the ideas you want. And I will help funnel them through this very complicated system of, of Hollywood and what it means to, to produce content. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to that end, you know, for, congrats on your overall deal at Netflix, because I mean, listen, that's big. That's so big. Thank you. And, you know, I feel like, what does what does having that your own table what does that look like for you because i know that you know the first uh the first story that's coming out of this this deal with netflix is the the true story of janet cook you know the reporter at the washington post who won a pulitzer prize for a story only to give the prize back after it came to light that she fabricated the story and so what about that story 
made you want it to be the one that you led with? Because this is, you know, this is your, not only is it your first project out of this historic Netflix deal, but it's your debut as a feature film director. So it's huge. So what is, so this is like really a story that you're making a statement with. I mean, you've made many statements before, but you know, this one is, seems to be, uh, at least as a viewer, it seems like it's going to carry some weight. So what about that story made you gravitate toward it? I think for me, you know, number one, it's a personal one. Um, I think every story that I tell or any script that I decide to direct or write, I have to find my self in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a story really about ambition. Um, Janet Cook. So I was to say, what you kind of, <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think it's, it's a story about ambition. Yeah. You know, I think really at the end of the day, um, Janet Cook did everything she could to be noticed, to yeah. be great, to be seen. Um, her decisions may not have been ones that I would make, but I can understand as a human being and as a black woman at these majority white publications, what that isolation um, and tokenization can look and feel like on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. You know, the first time I had ever heard about Janet Cook was in undergrad, really, in a journalism class, we were studying um, the idea of fabulous. You know, she was the first to get caught. I don't think she was the first, that, but the that. black woman was the first to get caught and the first to be put right there on the cross to say, right. throw your daggers at her and da 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 da. <laughs> and so for me, she really was this figure of kind of like a boogeyman. You would always hear, like, don't be like Janet Cook, girl. Listen, don't do it, Listen. you know, and we I all went through undergrad and grad of journalism. Like, she it's like, ooh, like boogie woman stuff. Jason like, Blair, you know, exactly. Jason Blair was the next one, you know, at the New York Times. And so, in this sense, um, for, for me, she's always kind of been this looming figure and this enigma because I think that many she's very private, many people don't know her. Um, and so for me, I think that she is a central pivotal, um. Um, figure in American uh, history. Mm -hmm. And as a Black woman um, who worked as a journalist, who studied journalism, um, intimately, I feel that I understand her and I want to make sure that her story is told um, in a full and thoughtful way. Yeah. And so even though my deal was primarily in television with Netflix, um, I had thoughts of like possibly doing it as a limited series. Um, but there's something about it that I just, I, I saw the film and as I was writing, working on the script with Ned Martell, who used to work at the Washington Post, it felt like, it felt like a feature. And I wanted to see that black woman on screen, um, at the center of her own story. And that's kind of was all the elements for me. It was, I think it was a protectiveness. It was the, the personal, um, resonance of the piece, um, and it was the idea of really wanting to to tell this story on the big screen in that way. That's a part of it too. And you know, speaking a little bit, going back to just 360 storytelling, I mean, I have to ask you about your acting career. I mean, you oh god, <laughs> no, don't do that. You don't do that. You did. Casey, there is no career. There is one spot. Listen, <laughs> listen. I was gonna say, like, I did not know I needed Janet Mock, the actor, because you know, you we oh, always have Janet Mock, the director, the podcast. It was all those things I mentioned at the top of this interview, but we got actor in devs. 
It was so good. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my all god. I can think, all I can concentrate on is those horrible, those horrible shoes because <laughs> I because I had to step out of that helicopter. That Alex Garland put me in those those hideous shoes that I would never wear. But Mama then I realized, out oh, in a this pantsuit and some heels. <laughs> she was ready to go. <laughs> like, and a slick don't... ponytail, honey. It was like I was like, this is a character because this is not me. Um, yeah, it was. It was actually it was a great exercise. I have to really be grateful to my really good girlfriend, um, Carmen Cuba, casting director. She casted the project, and she's been trying to get me to act for so long. Um, and so she was just like Janet you need to do this like if I if I put you on tape Alex is gonna love you so like let's just do it and I was just like a senator literally the script said 50 something year old woman I was like oh my god why are you reading me right now um and so she was like no I feel like she's more like AOC meets Kamala Harris so like just go and like be like that California you know and I was like, okay. And then I got to play with Nick Offerman, which was so great when I finally got it. And it was it was cool though yeah. to really I saw it as an exercise in knowing the vulnerability that actors go through on a day to day basis. Mm -hmm. You know, I sat literally in their chair in their shoes, waiting to shoot, rehearsing, not having much control. Because when you're a producer and you're a writer um, and you're a director in television, you got a lot of power. You get to call the shots. You get to set the pace of the day. When you're an actor, you don't have all that stuff. And so well, you get realize... an image of you just like slowly drifting behind the camera. Like, <laughs> oh, no, how did I get here? Oh, no, I wasn't touching anything. Oh, no, 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 no. I was going back to my chair. Just kidding. Just Not kidding. on Alex's set. No. Alex, <laughs> it was that quiet British set. It was completely different than like Ryan Murphy world. Oh, yes. Where things are a little louder and just mm -hmm. a lot more. It was just very hushed tones. Everyone was very <laughs> respectful. No one screamed action or cut. It was just like, it was just, it was a nice exercise for me. Um, do I have like ambitions to be an actor? Not really. Oh. Um, probably before this, I, the only on-camera stuff I had hosted things. Like I remember I had my own MSNBC show, like a digital series and I guess hosted for Melissa Harris Perry and MSNBC. And I had like a, you know, one, a, a year contract with MSNBC before Trump came and blew everything up. And then that really forced me to go into a, a new realm. But uh, yeah, not my, not my passion, I guess. Okay. Um, All right. But if someone wrote something for me, I would do it. You know, right I wouldn't say no. You got that power, <laughs> write it for yourself. <laughs> no, because you were so good. I mean, like it's, you have, you have oh. presence. You're obviously telegenic. Like it was so, I loved it. And I wanted to say, oh, I, I want to see more Janet Mock in these roles. But, <laughs> you know, just to kind of wrap things up. I mean, one question that I always love to ask my guests is, you know, this is a podcast about creativity and it can be something of an abstract concept in, in some ways. And so when you think back it your career and all that you've done so far because obviously you have so much more to do but at this point in your career how have you come to define creativity for yourself what does it mean to you i don't know I, for some reason i just heard freedom like that when mm -hmm. you were asking that question i just was like freedom freedom to think and be and um do kind of what you want you know for me as a writer, I think I didn't call myself an artist until I read The Artist Way mm. by Julia Cameron. That book was really pivotal to my own understanding of what it means to be a creative, um, to be able to give yourself 
the time, the space, the room of your own um, creation, for lack of a better word, to 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 let your soul come out um, from its hiding place, kind of as Zora Neale Hurston says um, in *The Rise*, we're watching God, my favorite novel. Um, and so for me, it's just having that freedom to think, to have that brain space without distractions and really, you know, this whole pandemic through all of the, you know, stay at home orders, and the mass and the lack of touch and the lack of um, physical space that we can be with each other. I have been able to really find um, a space where I could be present for the first time. And I feel like, honestly, um, without the pressure of deadline, mm. you know, the last three years of my life, I've been on set, like mm. <laughs> on set, um, writing, running back downstairs to shoot something, waiting for a setup to go back upstairs to write the next script. Like it's been ongoing, just boom, 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 boom. I feel like I've been on this, you know, um, kind of treadmill in a way you know from pose to politician to pose season two to hollywood right after that back to pose season three where i was directing the premiere and then we got shut down that i really didn't have the space to truly just be creative to really think about what is it that you want and so when you ask that question about creativity it's that that freedom of space the freedom to to let yourself show up to let those stories unfold in front of you to me that's what it 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 kind of means Oh, I love that. I love that. Janet, thank you so much. You have just blessed this day. I was stressed out <laughs> running around trying to find a decent corner to record this podcast in. And you just were the solve. You were the ointment of this day. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Casey, for having me and for having these conversations. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, don't forget to rate and review. We always love hearing your feedback. I'm your host, Casey Fining.